Well, imagine for a moment that you, you had the opportunity to set one of these two men free from incarceration. Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, who just pretend for the sake of this illustration that he has been incarcerated for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Franklin Graham or Robert Deere Jr. You probably don't know that second name, but you will likely remember what he did. In 2015, he opened fire on a Planned Parenthood facility in Colorado Springs. And he killed one police officer and two civilians in that attack. Nine other people were injured. His anti-abortion views proved to be the motive behind this attack on this clinic. He's a violent domestic terrorist. And so there's your choice. It's an easy choice, right? Well, that's basically the kind of choice that These Jewish leaders faced this day in Jerusalem because it was the custom of the feast of the Passover for one prisoner to be released. But when Pilate gave them a choice, when he gave them an opportunity to do the right thing, the people chose Barabbas instead of Jesus. Now, John simply says that Barabbas was a robber. But you put all four gospel accounts together and you get a you get a better sense of this guy's criminal profile. He was a notorious criminal with a long rap sheet. He he's 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 was convicted of robbery, murder, uh insurrection, rebellion against Rome. He was a terrorist, basically. And who would ever, who would ever want that kind of prisoner turned loose? That's what Pilate's thinking. No, no, they, there's no way that they'll choose Barabbas over Jesus. So no, not the chief priests and the scribes for sure. They had nothing but contempt in their hearts for, for terrorists from their own people. Yes, they may have agreed with Barabbas on some of his political viewpoints or social, uh, social issues, but they had nothing, uh, nothing, um, They wanted nothing to do with the likes of a guy like him and his tactics. When the choice is given between this notorious terrorist and Jesus Christ, their hatred for Christ is so great that they demand the release of Barabbas. That's what we have here. Barabbas' full name, according to tradition, was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was a very common name. Barabbas means literally son of the father. And so the people cry out for the freedom of Jesus, son of the father, rather than Jesus who is ultimately son of the father. There's bitter irony in this passage. And we're going to see that throughout this whole scene is just drenched with irony, painful irony. And so the question I want to consider, I want us to consider today is, which Jesus do you want? The choice is easy, right? I mean, this is a no-brainer. But let's, so, so, but let's really look at Christ in this passage. Let's really see Him and let's want Him more, who He really is. Not the Jesus of our own making, but the Jesus who is revealed right here in these verses. And so we'll walk through this passage and then I have... Three statements about the Jesus that I want. And 
I hope it's the Jesus that you want too. So let's let's walk through this again together. Now Pilate, he's a politician. And I realize politicians and lawyers get a really bad rap. But not all politicians are bad guys. I don't know about lawyers. Jeremy, I don't know if you're in here. Sorry. Uh, but 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 he, he, like any power-hungry politician, Pilate was never at a loss for an idea to squirm his way out of a bind. He could. He always had. He always had some card to play. And one of the cards he holds and decides to play here is the sympathy card. That's what he's doing. He remembers the crowds lining the streets just a few days ago. Oh, hailing Jesus and and lauding him. Uh, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes, comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. So he remembers all of that raucous. And so he's thinking maybe some of those same people are, are in this crowd out here today. And so maybe they'll come to his aid, come to his defense. So he takes Jesus and he, you say, this is his sympathy card. He takes Jesus and he roughs him up. And then he parades him in front of the crowd, hoping for some sympathy. So the the Romans, look at verse uh, chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now the Romans had three different types of flogging or scourging, depending on your translation. The first type was a, a, a whipping that was just corrective. It was painful, but it was not in any way debilitating. And so people who committed minor crimes, they could they could be flogged, and that would just be the end of it. That would be their punishment, and they would... Go on. This would be, there would be painful swelling. There would be bruising. There would be some loss of blood. It would, it would, you would basically look like you just really got beat up bad in a fist fight and you lost badly. That was the first type of flogging. And then there was a second type which was much more severe. Not life threatening, but very painful. And so you're talking significant loss of blood. The victim would need days or weeks to recover from the flogging, would have scars from deep lacerations. A second type. And then there was a third type of flogging that the Romans used, which was just absolutely brutal and barbaric. This wouldn't take place until a prisoner was sentenced to die. And so this was the most vicious kind, and this is what we tend to think of, that, that using that, that leather whip that was braided with shards of metal and other sharp objects and shrapnel that they would they would just slash the 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 victim the prisoner and 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 the victim would be scored so viciously until his bones were laid bare until his entrails were exposed and and oftentimes prisoners would die simply from the scourging but the whole purpose of this final type of scourging and flogging was to 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 basically beat them until they were half dead it would speed up their expiration on the on the cross. And so there's three types. And what we see here in, the, in, in this first reference that Pilate has Jesus flogged. And it takes place before he sentences him to execution. And then you look at the synoptic gospels. And they tell us that Jesus did receive this ultimate scourging. That third type that I just described. And so there, what there seems to be happening. There are two different floggings here. Two different scourgings. The lighter one first in this last ditch effort by Pilate to, to keep from condemning a man that he's convinced in his mind is innocent. And then ultimately there will be that later, that ultimate form that comes after he's sentenced to die which will hasten his death. 
a crucifixion. But here, it does seem to be that first time. Pilate wants to satisfy the, the bloodlust of this crowd. Who, so, so he has him whipped. Thinking maybe this will appease them. And maybe they'll, the, the, then he can let, let Jesus go. That's his desire. That's his intent. So remember, Pilate hasn't released Barabbas yet. The, the crowd is asking for Barabbas in the place of Jesus. But he, he's hoping here, though, to use, to use uh, the crowd's sympathy to kind of wiggle off of the judicial hook that he's on here. That's what his aim is. Maybe the people will see Jesus in his painful and weakened state and call for his release and just say, enough already. That's enough. So, but look what happens. Verse, verse 1 again. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Now at our Good Friday service just a few months ago, we looked at Matthew's account of this scene. And and. We, we looked at this mockery in, in, in great detail. The soldiers are just making sport of Jesus. They're playing dress-up with him, a very painful form of dress-up. Because as they drive this crown of thorns on his head, don't think of thorns like stickers or something like that, where you get a thorn in your sock or something like that. No, these were up to 12 inches long thorns. These are spikes, basically, that they... From, from probably from a date palm tree, and they would they wove this crown together and then just pressed this onto the into the temples of our Lord. That was an excruciating pain. But it, but all of it is here for the amusement of the soldiers. It's just mockery. And and when they and then they take turns punching and slapping Jesus. Whichever side was Jesus' blind side, that's where the next blow would come from. They're just mocking and and pummeling our Lord. And the whole idea here is to make Jesus not look like a king, but like a court jester. Say, behold, here's, here's your king. Oh, great king. What a pathetic, pathetic, pathetic species you are. That's what's happening here. And it's in this ridiculous, blood-soaked costume that Pilate, Pilate once again brings Jesus before the crowd that's standing outside. So he's been, this has all happened kind of behind closed doors, the scourging, the dress up. Now he takes Jesus outside again to those Jewish leaders who will not enter into Pilate's compound lest they be defiled so they can't eat Passover. So he goes back out to them. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Eka homo. As a famous, there's a famous painting of this scene and that Latin description is what the painting is titled. Behold the man. Look at him. We can't, we can't get into Pilate's mind here. It would be great if we could. We can't pry into his mind and extract from his brain exactly what he's thinking, what he has in mind when he states this, what comes this famous saying, Behold the man. But may, maybe he's simply saying 
to those who are watching this spectacle, look at this humiliation. How can, how can this man who is now adorned with the crown of thorns and being mocked with the spit of soldiers running down his cheeks, how can, how can this be conceived by anybody as a threat? Look at this man. Look at him. He looks like a clown. Isn't that enough? Let's be done with this. Maybe that's what Pilate has in mind. Maybe that's all he has in mind as he says this. does seem to be part of it. But even if that's all he has in mind, we can't escape the invisible hand of providence here at work in this moment, which Jesus alludes to later. There's this, there's this irony here. The one standing here in this costume looking like a fool is nothing less than the incarnation not only of God, but of perfect man. Behold the man. This is man as he was created to be. This is, this is the second Adam standing in front of this crowd right now. You see that? And when Pilate says, behold the man, he doesn't have a clue as to the weight of his words here. Because what they should have been doing was looking at Jesus and saying, yes, this is man. This is man as God intended them to be. This is man as God designed him to be. This, this, is, this, this, man, this is man and there is no fault in him at all. That's what should have happened. And so Pilate gives this statement. Behold the man, again, no clue as to the real weight of his words. But this is the providence that's behind this scene. Whatever Pilate's intent here, which again seems to be to draw sympathy from the crowd, it has little to no impact on the mercy of the mob. See in verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they didn't cry out, have mercy, enough already. They cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. So listen to the sequence. Pilate says, Echo homo, or behold the man, look at him. And in the very next words, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they beheld him. And they did behold him, and they hated him. And they called for his death. They screamed for it. Verse 6, and Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now by, by this time, Pilate is absolutely beside himself with frustration. He finally says in exasperation, You take him. Now he, he knows perfectly well that that they have no right to take Jesus and crucify him. That's out of, they have no authority to do that, but he's so flustered, so frustrated that they won't give in to what he, he uh, thinks should be done. So he says, alright, you do it, because I'm not going to do it. Because I don't see anything wrong with this man. I'm not going to crucify a man who I think is innocent. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, well, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Do you hear that? We, we, we saw this last week. Remember, this was the, this was the charge that, 
that the, Jesus was brought to the Romans uh, based upon, the, the Jewish leaders brought this charge against Jesus of sedition, of challenging the Roman crown. This was, the, the crime was supposedly political. But we all knew, we knew all along that what was bothering the Jewish leaders wasn't the political overtones of Jesus' ministry and teaching. It was the theological overtones of his self-proclaimed identity. They didn't hate Jesus for his politics. They hated Jesus for his theology. But you see, they, they knew they, couldn't get, they wouldn't get the time of the day from, from a Roman governor by bringing a theological charge against Jesus. So they, they trumped up this charge of sedition and all this business of kingship. And that's what we looked at last week. Now when that doesn't work, they say, you know, look, Pilate, we, we want you to kill him. And because our law prohibits anyone, people from making themselves equal to God, we're, we want you to do, your, do the work for us. Kill him. Put him to death. He's got to die. They're desperate. And then there's a strange little statement from John. Look at it in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Which tells me a couple of things. One, he was already afraid. But now he's more afraid. And it's something about this statement that the Jews make. What's he afraid of? What is it about this statement? Maybe all this means is that John is telling us that when Pilate hears the crowd kind of change gears and, and they come up with a different charge and they're refusing to back off their bloodlust, that, that, that Pilate becomes more frightened by the, by the power of this mob and he, he goes back in and retreats back to be where Jesus is, to get away from this angry mob because he's afraid of them. Maybe that's it. I don't think so. Remember, Pilate's just spent... Some time alone with Jesus. And he has never, ever had a prisoner stand in front of him who was anything like our Lord. And now Jesus' enemies are saying, he calls himself the Son of God. He's making himself equal with God. And and you wonder what Pilate's thinking now. Could could there be this nagging thought? Uh Uh-oh. What if he's not just a man? What if he's, what if he is the son of God? If this guy's the son of God, I'm in big trouble. And, and, and we don't have this here, but in Matthew 27, we know that his wife was having, having these strange dreams and she's warning her husband, Pilate. She said, don't, don't have anything to do with this Jesus. It doesn't look good. I'm having these dreams and so either way, he's starting to get nervous and he's shaking in his sandals. So he runs back in, and the first question he asked Jesus is what? Look in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? In other words, really, who are you? Where are you from? You're, you're, not, you're not like anything, anyone I've ever met before in my life. Which says to me again that he's really terrified by the suggestion that he might be more than just a man, a mere man. But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And authority to crucify you? 
Speak up. Where are you from, I asked you. And this is this is Pilate. He's pressing him. But like a lamb before its ears is silent. So he opened out his mouth. Pilate says, you better say something. I have power. I can have you killed. I can be crucified and, and also have the power to set you th- free. So you better you better talk to me. Don't you know who not not don't you know who you're talking to, but don't you know who you're not talking to? Verse eleven Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus says, Is that right, Pilate? You have authority over me. No, you're you're completely powerless on your own. You have no authority at all, except that which is given to you. Pilate is simply he's simply the public face. He's an actor in this great drama of redemption that's playing out here. It's as if Jesus is saying saying to Pilate, Pilate, this is not about you. It's not about your skin. It's not about it's not about your status. It's not about your reputation with Rome. It's not about it's not about your uh, peace with the citizenry of of Jerusalem. This is not what it's about. It's about God. That's what all this is about. It's it, because you need to understand something. You have zero power over me unless my Father gives it to you. God is the one in charge here. This is what theologians call divine concurrence. You've heard that phrase. And concurrence just says that, that, that two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. So you can have different motives and, and yet they're working and you have the same outcome. And, and this, is, this, is what we, this is the greatest example of this is in the cross work of Jesus Christ. You have wicked men planning his death, and yet this is all part of God's good and perfect plan. One of the more other famous illustrations in Scripture is with Joseph and his brothers. They treated Joseph wickedly, but God preserved Joseph's life. And, and later when he confronts his brothers at the end, and they're terrified that, that Joseph's going to have them executed, uh, Joseph says to them, don't worry, I'm not, I'm not going to punish you. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because out of your wickedness, much goodness will come to the world. And so what we're seeing in this scene in, in John 19, this is, this is what we call Good Friday. Good Friday. And this is the best thing that could have ever happened to us. That Pontius Pilate has unknowingly done a great service to us, even though his intent is nothing but wickedness. John, Jesus is saying, Pilate, you're, you're nothing. You're clay in my father's hands. You're, you're, you're part of his plan. Nothing, you have no authority except which is given to you. It's been ordained from before the foundation of the world for you to do what you do. And, and you're doing it of your own free will and because of your own wicked heart and because you're, you're, a, you're a slave to public opinion. Yes, that's, that's all true. He's not, a, he's not a puppet on a string. But go ahead and do what you're about to do because you're just doing... What my Father has given you authority to do. Verse 11. End of verse 11. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now we don't know exactly who Jesus has in mind here. 
maybe Caiaphas, maybe Annas, the Sanhedrin, Jewish crowd, Judas. But we do know John made it very clear at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus came to his own, to the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. So I think that's certainly it. Now, we don't want to, I don't want to dwell on this point, but I, I, don't, I do want you to notice in passing that Jesus is talking here about degrees of sin and wickedness. I know we think all sin's the same, and yes, all sin makes us guilty before God, and we will be, we can, we'll be condemned for eternity for even the smallest sin. We're all sinners, and we're all guilty before the Lord, but all sin is not equal in degree. All sin is not equally heinous. There, there is a greater sin, and there is a lesser sin here. Jesus says that. The betrayal of the Jews, of the precious blood of their Messiah into the hands of the Gentiles is this exceptionally heinous and awful, awfully wicked sin. That's what Jesus is alluding to. Now the lack of justice found in Pilate is also sin. It's not like that's, a, that's nothing. It's a crime, but it's a lesser crime than, than Jesus' betrayal by his own people. And Jesus tells that to Pilate. He doesn't say to Pilate, you're guiltless in this, you're fine. It's those Jews you need to, they're the, they're the sinners. No, he says, he's a sinner. What you've, what you've done is wrong. But not as wrong as those who've delivered Jesus over to Pilate. <coughs> and then in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. <laughs> From the moment of this exchange between Jesus and Pilate, Pilate has one thing in mind, and that's to, to, to set Jesus free. There's no guilt in him. From this second onward, Pilate sought the release of Christ. He knows that's the right thing to do. That's what he wants to do. He's scared to do anything else. But, and that but comes in verse 12, middle of verse 12. So he has, again, Pilate's got, he's got one aim, and that's to, to release Jesus. He's, it's settled in his mind. There's no, there's no way, no reason at all to, to uh, can, can sentence this man to death. And then in the middle of the verse, there's this turn. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. That's not, that's not like we think, you know, I'm not going to be friends with you anymore. I'm breaking up with you on Facebook or something like that. He's going to unfriend you. Now this phrase, friend of Caesar, was a known expression. It was, to be a friend of Caesar meant you have this certain level of status within, within the empire. It spoke of, of, of supreme loyalty to the emperor and, and, and of being part of his inner circle. And, and, and historians differ on how widespread this term was used at this time whether this was kind of in its infancy or whether this was widespread, but certainly at a later date, there, there came to be those who were friends of Caesar had this little pinky ring with this uh, signet on it, and so you, you could visibly show, hey, I'm a friend of Caesar. And, and so whether, that was, whether Pilate was wearing that pinky ring at the time or that came later is, is uncertain. But, but regardless, it was known that to be a friend of Caesar was to be, be part of his inner, inner circle. Now, there's a little backstory here uh, from history. Pilate's mentor in government was a guy named Sejanus. And, and he was very high in the elite circle of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. 
He's very close to the emperor. Sejanus is the guy who got Pilate the, the, his role as governor over Judea and over the Jews in Palestine. And so he was kind of a mentor for, for Pilate. Well, just one to two years before this trial scene and before the death of Jesus, Sejanus got in trouble with Tiberius the emperor. And he was determined to be no friend of Caesar. What happened when he lost that status of being a friend of Caesar? Well, he and all of his closest associates were executed. So this is fresh in the mind of Pilate. And this was well known throughout the land. And I mean, he doesn't say it explicitly, but I have to wonder if these Jewish leaders have that in mind when they make this charge. This, they may have Sejanus in mind and say, Hey, buddy, you remember what happened to your friend Sejanus? And he was determined to be no friend of Caesar. And you're next, Pilate, unless you do what we want you to do. We'll, we'll go to Rome. We'll tell him. Because everyone who makes himself a king, verse 12, opposes Caesar. So if you let this guy who, <coughs> if you let this guy who claims to be king go, you'll be complicit in his insurrection and, and we're not afraid to go tattle on you to Tiberius. And he's kind of, remember, we talked about this last week, all the circumstances and, and Pilate's inability to get Palestine under control and, and the Jews in Jerusalem in particular under control. And so the emperor's kind of already had it up to here with, with, with uh, Pilate. And so, this, is, so this, this has him thinking. So Pilate's on the horns of this dilemma here. Does he, does he do what he knows is right? Which he's again in his mind. He's like, there's only one right thing to do. It's to set him free. Or does he save his own skin? So the Jewish leaders, they, they know Pilate's weakness. They know his vulnerability here, and they exploit it. They, 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 Caiaphas and his gang, they pay, play Pilate like pros here. Game, set, match. We got him. And again, we, we see there are these real human, real-life circumstances and pressures and influences here that are playing into this, and, and yet God is the one who's the grand conductor and he's orchestrating this whole scene. Isn't that wonderful? It's not out of control. Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, that you will be no friend of Caesar, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Not behold the man anymore. Behold your king. And the mob screamed out, Take him away, crucify him. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests and answered, We have no king but Caesar. (laughs) The ultimate betrayal of the Jews as represented by their leaders. We we don't have any king here except Caesar. You talk about blasphemy from the lips of God's chosen people. Psalm 95.3, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. And here they say, we have no king but Caesar. So he, verse 16, delivered him over 
to them to be crucified. And they led him outside of the city. They led him to the place of the curse. And the hands at the hands of the Gentiles, he's put to death. And that's what we'll see next week. So who do you want? Well, Jesus was the Christ. Jesus Barabbas. What kind of Jesus do you see here? What kind of Jesus do you want? Let me just make three quick statements and then we're going to sing. I know we didn't sing much earlier. Maybe I should have commented on that. We're going to sing a lot more at the end in response to the message. And so I thought that would be a good fitting way for us to respond today. First thing that I would say I want and what I see here is I want a willing Jesus. I want a willing Jesus. I want a Jesus who isn't kicking and screaming. But he's silent. And that's what we see here. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. I know we're not familiar with shepherding. Most of us. Um. And I read some on shepherding and preparation. In Scotland, there the sheep will run half wild for long stretches of time, only being kind of watched by dogs. There's actually McDonough Road over here. I don't know if they still have them, but they used to have sheep and, and these shepherd dogs that would run around the fields with the sheep and protect the sheep uh, right over here, kind of behind McCurry Park, that farm back there. Um, but it, but again, so you'd have these, these sheep being shepherded by dogs and and when the shearing time comes, they're, they're herded by shepherds into folds. And when they're in the folds, they're bleeding and they're, you know, making all kinds of ruckus and moving around. But then when a single sheep is sheared, they'll flip it upside down so its legs are sticking up in the air. That would be really fun to see. And then generally, they just go still and silent. And then snip, 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 they cut the fleece off and, and it goes on. Well, the, the imagery of Isaiah 53, again, is not fresh to us, we don't, we're not an agrarian people, but it certainly was to Jesus' hearers here. And so Jesus, he's, he, this, is, this is the imagery. Jesus choosing to keep his mouth closed, though, isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of submission, of willingness. Submission is, is strength held in check. And it's interesting to compare Jesus with Pilate in this scene. We expect to find a fearful, trembling Jesus who's being beaten up and mocked and spit upon and threatened and he's left alone and a supremely confident Pontius Pilate. Jesus has no friends at all here with him. Pilate has the whole power of the Roman Empire behind him. Jesus is seemingly powerless. He's already bleeding and he's bruised and bloodied and swollen from his wounds. Pilate can snap his fingers and have a thousand soldiers to do his bidding. And yet, a confident Pilate is not what we see. And a fearful and trembling Jesus isn't what we see. What we actually see here is a, is a hurting, yes, but calm, confident, quietly confident Jesus. And a fearful and trembling Pilate. Because what? Jesus is willingly submitting to his Father. And his Father's will. He willingly faces suffering for our sins. I want a willing Jesus. He was a 
Jesus was a willing sacrifice. He wasn't a clone that was robotically just kind of doing the Father's will. He was fully engaged in what's happening here. He was willingly, continually submitting himself to the Father's will out of an abundance of love for you and me. He was not reluctant as he moved toward the cross. He went willingly. So I want a willing Jesus. Second, I want an innocent Jesus. An innocent Jesus. I don't want a Jesus who was just a good moral man. I don't want a Jesus who was better than most in his day. I don't want a Jesus who was simply better than Barabbas. Well, if you got one of these, I guess we'll take him. No, I, I, I want, no, I need an innocent, I need a perfect, a spotless, a completely righteous Jesus, Savior. Pilate attests to Jesus' sinlessness, though he, he, again, he doesn't realize what he's saying fully, but over and over again, I find no guilt in him. There's nothing wrong with this man. Hebrews 4.15, we see the importance of this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You know, the, the New Testament insists on the sinlessness of Christ. The sinlessness of Jesus is absolutely vital for our salvation. The gospel comes completely unraveled if Jesus tells one little white lie. If, if, if he was just slightly jealous or envious of his brothers or of others in his community growing up, the gospel falls apart. If he had one lustful thought, something that he harbored in his heart as he looked at a woman across in the marketplace, then our salvation is a sham. He has to be absolutely sinless, staggering. And he is, though. He is without fault, without blemish. I, I want an innocent Jesus. I want a Jesus who can take my sin and the punishment for my sin and who can credit to me his perfect earned righteousness. And then last, I want a, I want a substitutionary Jesus. Pilate released Barabbas, he, but handed Jesus over to be crucified. That's substitution. It can't be stated more clearly, honestly. There, Jesus died for Barabbas. He died in Barabbas' place. You know, there are theologians get all tangled up talking about theories of the, of, of the atonement and, and trying to explain what Jesus' death actually accomplished and, and what it meant and the meaning and the effect of Jesus' death. And so there's all these different moral influence theory and example theory and and ransom theory, and governmental theory, and all the other theologians talk about these things. What we really ought to believe is the Barabbas theory of the atonement. Substitution. Because it's not theoretical for Barabbas. He, he has a better idea of what happened at the cross than any scholars, really, if he had any mind to think about it. Jesus died for Barabbas. Substitution, Literally. Jesus died in Barabbas' place. Jesus died the death that Barabbas should have died and deserved to die. Jesus died on the same cross that Barabbas would have died upon. I'm not saying Barabbas became a believer in Jesus or anything. I, I don't know. But you can see the literal situation here, that Jesus was literally a substitute for Barabbas. Barabbas was released. Jesus was delivered to be crucified in his place. And that's what I mean by a substitutionary Jesus. Jesus who died in my place for me and who died in your place for you. 
Now, I I do wonder if Barabbas connected those dots, how much he thought about this after this event, if he ever thought about it. I can't help but wonder about this guy and what happened with the rest of his life. You know, I have the television specials. Where are they now? Uh, Maybe in glory we'll we'll know what happened with Barabbas' life, if he ever came to trust in Christ. But I wonder if Barabbas was on his way back home and being released and maybe kind of puffed up. And yeah, all right, crowd loves me. And going back to join his old cronies if he walked by Golgotha. He stared up there and looked at that center cross and thought, huh, that would have been me. That's where I, that's where I was headed. Jesus called Messiah, died for Jesus Barabbas in my place. That's what the cross that's what the cross means to us in a very real way. We should when we think of the cross, we think that's that should have been mine. All the punishment that Jesus endured on the cross, that was do me. Yet Jesus died in my place. We wanna we wanna consider the weight of that. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm gonna tell if the music team can come on up and and we're gonna sing together. Um I just want to read from Isaiah, end of Isaiah 52 and, and through chapter 53. I want you to just bow your heads, close your eyes, don't open your Bible and follow along. If you can just listen and just meditate, think on these words as I read them. And just let the scenes of Jesus' suffering here kind of pass before you through this prophetic lens in Isaiah 53. And then we'll sing together. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression 
of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors.